I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, and Eric, people say boxing is dead, but here's a sure sign that it's actually alive and kicking. Uh, so during the unfortunately fairly tedious co-main event uh, to Saturday night's Josh Taylor-Jose Ramirez uh, fight, uh, I was watching the clock ticking down, knew that an NBA playoff game was coming up, and I figured we'd maybe have time to see five or six rounds of the main event, and then we'd get kicked off and told to watch the rest of the fight on ESPN Plus or something like that. And yet, for once, it wasn't boxing that was preempted or interrupted. It was actually the NBA game that was bumped to ESPN2. And the fight was allowed to unfold and finish. It was almost as if ESPN considered boxing a real sport and its fans worthy of respect, which is actually more than most people in the boxing business seem to think. <laughs> um, I don't know what kind of crazy, bizarro world that was on Saturday night, but I kind of liked it. Yeah, I'm not sure what NBA Twitter had to say, but I presume <laughs> they were up in arms, and rightfully so. Um, this isn't quite as hurtful as getting bumped for, say, college softball. Uh, at, at least they're getting bumped for a world championship professional boxing match. Uh, but I'm sure many Trailblazers and Nuggets fans don't appreciate the difference. That said, I don't understand why ESPN can't time stuff out a little better, uh, not schedule the start of boxing two hours after the start of a college basketball game that typically runs two hours and 20 minutes, uh, or in this case, not start with an eight rounder, you know, talk to top rank, yes. work it out, start with your 10 round co-main. If that goes short, put in the eight rounder. If not go right to the main event. And then if that ends early, finish with an eight round walkout bout, it's, it's really not that complicated. I'm shocked that they put themselves in this position to risk overlap. And I guess I can't, quite say that I'm I'm shocked about how it played out for, for boxing, but I'm at least a little relieved that it wasn't what you alluded to expecting to happen. And now join us on ESPN2 for the championship rounds of the fight that you're really into. Um, I think it works out well for boxing because I bet this fight gets pretty strong ratings. You know, it, it was a big fight and a good fight, so that always helps. But also NBA fans might have flipped to the channel at game time and maybe left the fight on knowing the first 10 minutes of an NBA game are meaningless uh, as, as are the next first 33. 10 minutes. Only, right. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, really everything, but the final five, uh, pretty, pretty pointless, but I digress. Go Sixers. <laughs> you, go. you actually took away like my little line. I was going to be like, well, there's no point having an NBA game and or watching an NBA game on TV until the final five minutes anyway. But yes, clearly it's <laughs> not a hot take on my part. No, it's a take that, Pretty much, it's basically the take that everyone who doesn't love NBA has, and the take that even those who do love NBA know is true but won't say out loud. <laughs> gotcha. All right, coming up this week, we will be looking ahead to another title fight, uh, this one on Showtime. And we have a triple header on Showtime Championship Boxing, uh, headlined by Nonito Donaire, taking on Nordin Upali in Bantamweight action. Uh, we will look back on. 
what we just kind of talked about, the Josh Taylor's unanimous decision win over Jose Ramirez to become the undisputed 140-pound champion. But first, we had some good stuff happening inside the ring. There was an awful lot happening outside of it, too. Uh, let's begin with the biggest news in the world of boxing. Uh, and we've got two explosive items uh, to start with here, really. And first up, the heavyweights. On last week's podcast, Eric, we were bemoaning the fact that the heavyweight battle of Britain between Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua wasn't going to be happening in Britain at all. But hey, at least it was happening. Uh, but just a matter of days later, it became clear that it wasn't actually happening at least not now, and perhaps not ever, depending on how events unfold over the coming weeks and months. We've all had a good chuckle, not least you and I, over Deontay Wilder since his loss to Fury last year, or at least over his seemingly never-ending list of excuses for that defeat. Well, who's laughing now, eh? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I don't know if he'll have the last laugh, uh, but at the moment, Deontay Wilder gets to laugh. He turned this whole thing on its head having presumably dispensed with his heaviest ring walk costumes, uh, as well as the services of co-trainer Mark Breland, Wilder has enforced his contractual right to a third fight with Fury, and it appears that fight will be happening very soon. On Saturday night, ESPN showed us video of Tyson Fury signing the contract, already signed by Wilder, for a trilogy fight that will take place on July 24th in Las Vegas at T-Mobile Arena, according to Bob Arum. So backing up just a bit. We knew in the aftermath of Fury's knockout of Wilder that Wilder had a right to demand a third fight, which he did. However, when that third fight didn't come together, in part because of COVID and the inability to do it in front of fans, Aram and Fury's team insisted early in 2021 that a deadline to make it had passed and that Fury was free to go ahead and make a deal with Joshua. Wilder naturally disagreed. And so, it turned out, did arbitrator Daniel Weinstein, who on Monday ordered that Wilder and Fury had to meet again by September 15th, unless the parties agreed to a delay. After an initial flurry of claims that maybe Wilder would agree to step aside, fueled by Fury claiming Wilder had specifically demanded $20 million to allow Fury Joshua to go ahead, Aram swiftly insisted nobody would be paying any step-aside money and that Fury would take care of business with Wilder before turning his attention back to Joshua later in the year. And now, uh, that Fury-Wilder 3 contract appears to be done. So, Kieran, what's your take on how this happened, and who are the winners and losers out of this turn of events? How did that happen? I guess one side decided that a legally binding contract was a legally binding contract after the other side had decided it wasn't or something. I I, uh, I mean, I don't know. You know, Aram's a smart guy, but he really seems to have dropped the ball here. Uh, a smart guy with a legal background, no less. Well, indeed, indeed, <laughs> yeah. precisely. And and his, you know, from what he was saying, apparently to, uh, to journalists uh, in Las Vegas for the uh, Taylor Ramirez fight week, was he sounded absolutely Polax, like absolutely shocked by, by the decision. Like he clearly, it wasn't just that he just decided to move on. He'd obviously had his people looking at the paperwork and they'd all decided that, it was good for them to go ahead, but there you go. Um, who, who are the winners here? Well, for now, like you said, uh, Deontay Wilder, um, at least until and unless he loses to against Fury again. And it's difficult to know what he'd be able to do differently than he has done to this point uh, to avoid that fate. But he gets a very large payday. He gets an opportunity for revenge. And look, you know what? Maybe the fact that now, because of the way everything unfolded, he's going to get that opportunity for revenge 18 months after losing instead of almost immediately afterwards, which mm. is what he wanted. Maybe that's going to be to his benefit. You know, yeah. he's had time to 
work some stuff out, go through his entire list of excuses, you know, maybe come to terms with it. Um, other winners, uh, Alexander Usyk, potentially, mm -hmm. if uh, Joshua abides by an alphabet mandate to face him next, uh, if he's not fighting Fury. Um, T-Mobile Arena, they do all right. Uh, the family and supporters of Jamal Khashoggi and anybody who hates the idea <laughs> of watching sports washing in a human rights hating petro state, uh, at least for now. Uh, Fury's probably neither a loser nor a winner. He's probably a, a winner either way, right? He's, his, his meeting with Joshua is at best delayed, but he'll still get paid a lot of money. He'll still fancy this as a winnable fight, and he still gets to have fun on the set in ESPN. Right. Um, as for losers, yeah, Aram doesn't look good out of this, for sure. I mean, the fact that he was carping from the sidelines, seemingly not involved at all in the process of trying to make Fury Joshua and, and just criticizing Eddie Hearn. And now it turns out that he didn't have his side of the, the, the deal tied down at all. Uh, he, so he doesn't look very good, I think. But that will all be forgotten once uh, we start getting into the Fury Wilder 3 hype. And, and once the money starts dropping into his bank account, he'll be fine. Um, Eddie Hearn's got to be extremely unhappy. He's, mm -hmm. You know, he's clearly put an immense amount into making Fury Joshua. You do wonder if he's on the hook at all in any way for, your, you know, having come to this agreement and then it sort of falling through. Um, Joe Joyce, uh, he was in line to face Usyk um, and he might have thought he had a good shot there, uh, but that's not going to happen now. So he's got to get back in line. Uh, and Joshua, who he's, he's also a loser here, at least potentially. He, he either drops one of his belts, it seems, or he defends it against Usyk in, honestly, what stands to be a really, really tricky outing. Um, a, a real potential banana skin, I think. And finally, of course, after we began by saying how great it was to be a boxing fan watching ESPN <laughs> on Saturday, the real losers are the boxing fans. Because nine times out of ten, 99 out of 100 even, boxing fans are always the losers. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and, and you know, and they're, they're still getting it's it, you hate to slag on fury and wilder as if it's a terrible fight it's a good okay. fight it's okay. just yeah we we were this close to the obvious dream fight for the heavyweight division and uh we'll see we will see indeed and well so here's the question right so that's the losing stop here <laughs> um or is there more to come so say we end up with fury wilder three and joshua Usyk. what are the odds right now that Fury and Joshua come through that, and we still do get to see Fury Joshua by the end of the year, or indeed at all. So it's a parlay of several if-then statements, uh, and okay. and I guess each of those ifs is a favorite. But uh, as anyone who bets parlays knows, you you put enough uh, enough individual bets together in a parlay, and uh, it starts to become an underdog for them all to happen. So this feels a little shaky. Um, Fury has to beat Wilder again. Uh, Solid favorite to do so, but with Wilder's punching power, you can't count mm -hmm. him out. As you said, maybe the 18-month break will play to his advantage somehow. Um, Joshua has to beat Usyk. Um, on a side note, what a joke it is that Usyk moved up to heavyweight and immediately became a mandatory challenger yeah. for Joshua because of, you'll never believe this, 
absurd alphabet body rules that yeah. lie in the face yeah. of logic and fairness. Um, Usyk is a fine challenger to Joshua. I like the fight, but wins over Chaz Witherspoon and Derek Chisora and nothing else, and you're the guy AJ has to fight or else get stripped. It's so stupid. Um, yep. But fine, it's probably going to happen. And like Wilder against Fury, Usyk is a dog, but a live dog. Um, and then... If they both win, Fury and Joshua need to come back to the table and pick up where negotiations left off and finalize this thing. Maybe November or December is realistic. Maybe not. If either of them has a grueling fight, gets a bad cut, etc., we could be talking 2022. I guess this allows us to go back to hoping all the parties involved no longer have good excuses for not doing it at Wembley. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe Fury AJ in front of 90,000 at Wembley could happen and Saudi Arabia gets cut out. Uh, although if the $155 million site fee stands, well, wow. money talks. Um, all right. So clearly that's the biggest boxing news of the week. We had to lead the podcast with it, but wait, that's not all. There's more uh, at the end of a busy boxing week. As everyone was digesting the Fury Wilder news. And as the Josh Taylor and Jose Ramirez camps were shoving each other in a hallway after Friday's weigh in, Manny Pacquiao dropped a bombshell, <laughs> tweeting an image of a fight poster that proclaimed he will be facing Errol Spence in Vegas on August 21st on Fox Pay-Per-View. We've certainly talked about this as a possibility before, but I don't think either of us has spent too long thinking about it because while the potential upside for Spence was obvious, the risk-reward ratio seemed massively skewed toward the risk side of the equation for the now 42-year-old Pacquiao. As with Fury Wilder, and if it happens, Joshua Usyk, we'll have plenty of opportunity to discuss the X's and O's of the matchup. But from a breaking news perspective, Kieran, how surprised were you by this? What does it say about Pacquiao that he's willing to take on a challenge like this? And what's going through Terrence Crawford's mind right now? Wow. So first of all, Terrence Crawford has to be pissed, mm. right? I mean, he'd been wanting a Manny Pacquiao fight for years been talking about it for years. He knows it could have been a golden ticket for him. And then as we talked about a, a few weeks ago, supposedly there was paperwork in place for it to happen until promised funding failed to materialize. If he wasn't looking askance at his what's left of his contract with Bob Aaron before, he has to be now. Um if he ever imagined, Terence, that he would ever have any leverage over the terms of a possible Errol Spence fight, he can forget about it now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unless obviously Pacquiao, you know, blows Spence away. Uh, I, I, I think still Terence Crawford's a much better boxer than Spence. I, I honestly think he had the skills and the talent to be the, the, the best American boxer of his generation. But, you know, Spence's career, especially over the past few years, has become vastly better and more notable than his and it's going to be all the more so after this um and as for pacquiao bloody hell i, I gotta be honest i didn't see this coming at all uh, and i didn't even hear any whispers or rumors of it it's quite impressive that this appears to have been put together and maybe some folks did catch wind of it and kept it to themselves but for a uh, a match of this magnitude to go sort of under the radar until it was actually announced is incredible um and you talk about Deontay Wilder's stones, and you're quite right. But bloody hell, what about the stones of Manny Pacquiao? <laughs> yeah. 42 years old, and he's and he's doing this. He's taking on a much bigger, stronger, younger guy. He's no need to do this if he doesn't want to. His place in boxing history is secure. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's a national hero. Uh, he might well be president of the Philippines soon. Um, he's got it all, and he's still taking on a challenge like this. Um, 
it's such a momentous mountain for him to climb that even if it ends up being an ass whooping, I don't think it will negatively impact on his reputation at all. No. Just the fact that he's taking this on is impressive. Um, and Errol Spence, Lord have mercy, he he must have been he must have been a saint or something in a previous life because <laughs> I mean. The way the cards fall for him, I mean, just look at his last couple of years, you know, behaves with extreme irresponsibility, has a high-speed car accident that could have killed him and who knows how many other people. He comes away with it with just some broken teeth, um, gets a win over Danny Garcia, and now gets this huge payday. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable all the way around. Um, yeah, I'm absolutely really surprised. Uh, I'm I'm worried a little bit for Manny Pacquiao, I'll be honest with you, but... Nonetheless, the, it says an immense amount for him that this fight is happening. Yeah, I, I echo a lot of what you say. Uh, certainly agree on how good this is for Errol Spence. Um, assuming this fight goes according to script, he gets the biggest possible name on his record in an extremely high-profile event, and he has that much more leverage if negotiations with Crawford ever get serious. Um, maybe he even has the profile needed after beating Pacquiao to move up to middleweight and make a career high payday against Canelo. Possibly. I think that comes into play. Um, If he beats Pacquiao, it's a launching pad the same way beating an aging Oscar De La Hoya was for Floyd. And then for Manny, Um, I'm still a bit confounded by why Manny would want this. I wonder if maybe he sees something in Spence that he can take advantage of. Um, You know, I've been watching my advanced copy of the Kings documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it's like Sugar Ray Leonard seeing something in Hagler that he thought gave him a Mm -hmm. chance to pull the upset when hardly anyone else believed he could. Um, Or maybe they're just guaranteeing Manny a lot of money and he figures he has one fight left in him. If it goes poorly, it goes poorly, but he's looking for the biggest paycheck offered to him, and and this was it, and it's goodbye if he loses. I'm not sure. Um, I don't quite hate the fight. I definitely don't like the fight either. Yeah, no, I hear that. Um, I'll be a bit nervous for Manny when the bell rings, which is basically what you said. Kind of interesting to look at the contrast now. It's been six years since Manny and Floyd fought. They're both still going in their 40s. One of them is making the easiest possible money, and one of them is making the hardest possible money. Kind of interesting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You you mentioned, you know, like Manny, you know, that sort of what beating Oscar De La Hoya did for him. And you hope that that fight doesn't unfold the way that Mm -hmm. uh, that fight did. Yeah. Uh, one worries that it might, but yeah. Lord, Manny surprised us before. So here you go. Um, all of this sets us up for the tweets of the week, actually. Mm. Um, 
Fury Wilder 3 is set to be uh, a Fox ESPN joint pay-per-view. Pacquiao Spence will also be on Fox pay-per-view. And hence this week's tweet. It is from possibly the next big welterweight star, or one of them anyway, Virgil Ortiz Jr., who, in response to a tweet calling for the reestablishment of strong Yo Mama jokes, tweeted, (laughs) Yo Mama so dumb, she put a sheet of paper on the TV... And called it pay-per-view. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> I'm yeah. not alone, right? right? That's funny. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not bad. You know, I, I hate to put the for a boxer caveat on it or I, really right. for, for any professional athlete. They're not always known as, as the funniest. So, yeah, coming coming from a pro athlete, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed there. And I, I did see that uh, one when, when Virgil put it out. And it's especially sort of notable to me because... Um, I guess I was about 13 years old. Uh, pay-per-view was just starting to become a thing. Not in boxing for me yet, but uh, rather wrestling. Uh, WrestleMania was on pay-per-view, and a friend of ours invited over us over to their house. And my youngest brother, who I, if, if I was 13, if I'm like remembering the time frame right, he would have been eight. And he was very surprised when we got there to see that it was on regular television because he believed... He heard the words pay-per-view and thought that they gave you some sort of paper television that you watched the WrestleMania on. <laughs> so there, there's truth behind uh, Virgil Ortiz's joke there. Right. And it also shows, you know, probably it says a lot uh, uh, about me and the fact that I find that quite an amusing joke. The fact that it sort of immediately reminds you of your eight-year-old brother's confusion about, like, I think that just fits perfectly in my basic intellectual and emotional age group. So that's exactly <laughs> why I enjoyed it. There you go. This podcast would be huge with eight-year-olds if any of their parents let them listen to it. I, I'm convinced right. that's our really our, our target demographic. Yes, indeed. But I don't think actually, you know, any eight-year-old should be allowed to listen to the podcast. I'm not sure anybody should be allowed to listen to the podcast. <laughs> but... All right, that's that's not great for us to put that out there. Right. Good point. Good point. Let's 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 uh, refocus, shall we? Um, let's uh, look ahead here. This Saturday's Showtime Championship Boxing. Uh, the main event hasn't gone through quite as many twists and turns as Fury Joshua or Fury Wilder 3, but it's undergone quite a few. Um, Nonito Donaire and Nordin Ubali were originally scheduled to fight for a bantamweight title on December 12th, 2020. But the bout was called off in mid-November after Ubali contracted COVID-19. Uh, Donaire was then slated to face Emmanuel Rodriguez. Uh, the fight was then pushed back a week to December 19th. But a little bit more than a week before it's supposed to happen, Donaire then tested positive for COVID-19, although he insisted it was a false positive and, and indeed tested negative uh, a, a few days later. Now, finally... Fingers crossed it is indeed going ahead on Saturday at the top of a triple header from Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, California. And if this card is even remotely as exciting as the last showtime outing there on the 15th, we are in for a treat. And indeed, any time Anita Donaire is involved, uh, the odds of excitement are generally pretty high. Uh, Donaire is 38 years old now. If he wins against Nordin Ubali, he will, at 38 years and 204 days precisely, become the oldest person ever to win a bantamweight strap, succeeding present record holder Gary Penalosa. Um, Ubali, at 34, he's not exactly a spring chicken himself, especially by the standards of lower weight fighters, but he didn't even begin 
begin boxing professionally until he was 28 years old. It's an incredibly late time to, to start uh, becoming a pro boxer. By the time he made his pro debut in March 2014, Donaire was already 31-2, and two, uh, with his only losses coming in his second pro fight against Rosente Sanchez and his 32nd against Guillermo Rigondeau. Um, since then, though, Ubali has built up a record of 17-0 with 12, and 12 KOs. But Donaire has gone just nine and four, and he's three and three in his last six. And those three wins came against the unremarkable Ruben Hernandez and Stefan Young, and by way of retirement against Ryan Burnett. Uh, we've been guilty, I certainly, of writing off Donaire prematurely before. But is this the time where we would be right to be skeptical of his chances of winning? Is there anything to give him a ray of hope and suggest he has what it takes to pull out another win here? I think so, absolutely. Watch the 12 rounds against Inoue and then try telling me he doesn't have at least a ray of hope, maybe a few rays of hope. Uh, Ubali is a very good boxer. He's no world beater. Um, I think the question here, and I mentioned this recently when we were talking about Donaire, maybe it was with Abner Mares that maybe we brought this up, that how they say elite fighters, when they get old, they have that one last great performance in them. And was the NOA fight that yeah. for Nanito? It might have been. Um, that was a year and a half ago, and a year and a half is a big deal in the back half of your 30s. We just have no way of knowing if the last few drops were wrung out of the sponge that night, or yeah. if 18 months later he can fight like that again. Um, he's certainly in with a less destructive opponent this time. Um, he is in with a southpaw. That's never easy, although Daener has plenty of experience there. He's gone 6-2 and two versus southpaws since 2007. And Nonito was always an elite puncher. That's usually the last thing to go. So, yeah, it, to my eyes, plenty of reason to believe he can win this fight. It's just a matter of you never know when a guy is going to hit the wall. This is yeah. someone who fought on showbox a full 15 years ago um and and boxing careers especially for little guys aren't supposed to last that long he seemed on the way out seven years ago against nicholas walters he's lost three more times since all against top fighters but still um i think the donaire we saw against inui can certainly beat ubali a shell of that donaire can't beat ubali Um, So let me get your take on Ubali. Many viewers may not have seen him before. He's only fought once before in the United States on the Pacquiao-Broner pay-per-view undercard in January 2019. And of course, we covered that. So I I listened back to our post-fight podcast to see what I'd said about Ubali in his win over Rasheed Warren. And I said, there's a whole World Boxing Super Series going on at Bantamweight right now. I'd like to see him in against a guy from that tournament after it's over. Uh, Interesting that that's now happening. He's getting the runner-up in that tournament. Look at you. Yeah. Uh, I I should be a matchmaker. Or or pay me to be a matchmaker without me having to do any matchmaking. How do you like that idea? (laughs) Exactly. The step-aside matchmaking. Yes. That's that's my new career path. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, Kieran, give us a deep dive into Ubali's numbers. What what kind of a boxer is he? What are his strengths and weaknesses? Uh, And uh, aside from just hoping Donaire is washed... What does he need to do to emerge victorious? Yeah, he's a he's a fun boxer to watch. Uh, and he's a little bit of an unusual one. As you mentioned, he's a southpaw. He has this combination that I, I personally like to see in, in boxers who can pull it off. He's one of these guys who's, who likes to stand in the pocket and fight while being simultaneously really good at defense um, that enables him to avoid a lot of incoming. Um, took a look at uh, what our friends at CompuBox put together. 
by way of background. And uh, they've tracked five of his fights between June 2017 and November 2019. And during those, his opponents, there's a way to show just how good he is defensively. They landed just 1.6 jabs per round. Um, and that's just a 7.6% connect percentage with jabs. Mm. And that's way below bantamweight averages. Um, they've been limited to... A little over 40 attempted punches per round. That's way less than the 60.5 that's the average for bantamweights. And just 6.4 total connects per round. Um, so that's just like 16% overall punch accuracy uh, for guys who are trying to land punches on Nordin Ubali. Which, like I said, when you think, when you watch him, the fact that he stands there right in front of you, that's it's kind of remarkable. He's able to do that partly because of his southpaw stance, but also because he does have this great ability to sort of feint and slip even while in the pocket. Um, what kind of an offensive fighter is he? His jab's actually not really much of a factor. It's more of a range finder for his southpaw right hooks. He's got a lovely one there and uppercuts and, and really excellent left crosses. He also works quite well to the body. He's not the most accurate of punches, but what he does is he stands up and he just throws a lot. Uh, an average of a little over 55 punches per round in those five CompuBox tracked uh, fights. So he's a fun fighter to watch, but he's a very difficult one to beat. And he must be very frustrating because when you've got a guy who's standing in front of you like that and he's throwing a lot of punches, you've got to think you've got to be able to hit him back. And he must be a really, really frustrating guy to, to fight. I really enjoy uh, enjoy watching him. So. Mm. For folks who haven't seen him before, uh, win or lose, I think it should be a, a really interesting fight. Um, we have three fights in total on this card. Uh, the undercard brings us uh, more 140-pound action. Um, one between an unbeaten Kazakh and a Puerto Rican who's never heard the final bell, win or lose. Uh, the Puerto Rican is Subria Matias. He's 16-1 and one with 16 KOs. And we last saw him hanging the first loss on Malik Hawkins via sixth-round corner retirement. Um, the undefeated Kazakh is Batir Jukambayev, who amazingly started his career with back-to-back -back no contest. That has to be a first. Um, but has since gone 18-0 with 14 KOs. Jukambayev is also a southpaw. He's making his U.S. debut. Although he hails from Kazakhstan, he has to this point been fighting out of Quebec with the bulk of his fights in Montreal. So, Eric, we have two boxes whose combined 34 wins include 30 KOs fighting in an arena that almost never uh, fails to deliver. Does this have all the ingredients of another classic in the making here? Absolutely. Uh, j just like the last card at this arena, the co-feature feels like the best candidate to steal the show. Uh, these guys are bangers. Matias has more of that long, lean build that some punchers have. Jukambayev is a shorter, thicker southpaw, but also a puncher, although his opposition is suspect to this point, so the KO rate might be a little misleading. Then again, eight of his 14 KOs have come in the first round. You don't do that totally by accident. Um, Matias is a pure action fighter. He's aggressive. He throws lots of punches. He'll take one to land one. Jukambayev is a bit more of a question mark in terms of whether this will be totally fan-friendly. He has better defense than Matias, and as we said, he's a lefty. And he's stepping up here against the best opponent of his pro career. There's a chance he's cautious to some extent. I think the thing to watch for here is the pace. Can Jukambayev limit Matias's output? Matias averages more than 90 punches thrown per round, including more than 60 power punches. If Jukambayev can keep him from getting comfortable, keep him off balance, limit him to... 60 or 70 punches thrown per round. Matias isn't the most accurate puncher. That's a formula for victory for Jukambayev. If Matias fights the kind of fight he wants to fight, 
then that benefits him, of course, and it makes it very possible the fans in Carson, California, see another classic. Um, the opening bout of Saturday's triple header features a pair of familiar names. Well, almost. Um, in one corner, Giovanni Santiago will be making his first appearance since putting up an unexpectedly spirited performance against Adrian Broner in a fight that he lost by unanimous decision, but that unofficial ringside scorer Steve Farhood scored in his favor and that certainly served to cast yet more doubt on Broner's legitimacy as an upper tier contender. I'll make the obligatory F. Steve Farhood mention here. F. Steve Farhood. <laughs> um, Santiago will be facing off against Gary Russell. Uh, not our buddy, Mr. Gary Russell Jr., but his brother, Gary Antoine Russell. Uh, Russell is 24, and like their other brother, Gary Antonio, he is undefeated, but the similarities seemingly end there. While Antonio is renowned for his boxing skills and defensive acumen, Antoine is, at least to this point in his career, a true knockout artist. He is 13-0 with 13 KOs, seven of those KOs taking place in the first round, and none of them requiring more than four rounds. Santiago's loss to Broner, meanwhile, was the first of his pro career, and his record stands at 14-1-1, 10 knockouts. Kieran, is the fighting style between the Russell brothers as disparate as the record suggests? And given that Santiago essentially went even up with Broner last time out, is this one of the rare occasions on which a Russell brother enters about as an underdog? Yes, and not necessarily. Uh, okay. Yes to the first question. Uh, he's an entirely different beast. It's a big brother. Uh, whereas Mr. Gary Russell is, you know, hand and foot speed and ring generalship. Uh, Antoine is just raw aggression. He comes out, he sets a super fast pace from the off, and he just blitzes his opposition. Uh, CompuBox has tracked four of his fights. And during them, he's more than doubled his opponent's output. Um, more than quadrupled uh, their jab output. Uh, and, and in terms of uh, per round connects, uh, just greatly exceeded them. He um, He's also a robust body puncher. Uh, something like 42% of his total connects have been to the body, uh, which is way better than the CompuBox average uh, for this weight. Uh, the question mark again here, is over the quality of opposition that he's faced. Um, whereas Santiago, as you mentioned, he's coming off that disputed loss against Brana, who at least in theory, if not any more in practice, is a far higher caliber of opponent. Um, doesn't necessarily make Santiago the, the, the favorite, but I think it does mean that we maybe have a little bit better sense of Santiago's level and how he performs when he steps up uh, than we do to this point about Russell. And of course, that's the attraction of this fight and that's why this fight has been made. Uh, it may be that Santiago deserves to be the favorite here and we'll find that Russell is able to perform extremely well um, against a particular level of fighter, but not when he steps it up a little bit. Um, but, you know, maybe we'll also see that Russell is able to do that, that he's able to carry that power and dominance up to a higher level of competition. This is one of those intriguing fights that should actually tell us quite a lot about both guys. All right. You know what? Let's just jump right in, shall we? And make our predictions. Uh, the picks contest is delicately poised at the moment. Eric leading 27 to 26. You can almost feel the tension in the bleachers <laughs> as they watch it all unfold. Uh, it is my turn this week to pick first. Uh, and let's begin with the bout that we just discussed. Gary Antoine Russell against Giovanni Santiago. Um, and as I just mentioned, you know, Santiago is selected to help us know how good Russell is and where he stands. I also think not that it's the purpose of it. I think the fight may well also show us, in case we didn't know, just where Adrian Bronner stands right now. And, and I have a feeling that the answer is not going to be very flattering to the problem. Um, you know, Santiago's success against Bronner was to, some, was to a large extent, actually, facilitated by the fact that 
Bronner just doesn't throw any damn punches anymore. Right. Um, and Santiago's previously shown success against fighters who give him the room to move and sort of take the initiative and don't throw that many punches. That, of course, is going to be the exact opposite of what he's likely to face against Russell. Uh, add to that the fact that Russell's a southpaw. And he's also not just th in there throwing punches with abandon. Um, he's, he is, as you would expect from a Russell brother, he's well-schooled. He doesn't really leave himself very open there. Um, I think Santiago might get a little overwhelmed at times here. I, I have a suspicion that Russell's going to be able to take this step, half step up in quality. I don't know that Santiago will have what it takes to fend him off. The only question is whether he will continue his KO streak and whether he'll be forced to go more than four, continuing my habit of answering questions um, <laughs> both at once. I think the answers are yes and yes. I think it'll go about six rounds, five and a bit. KO six to uh, Russell in what will, I think, be a breakthrough performance for him. All right. So Russell was three and one in the amateurs against Boots Ennis. I got to yeah. think long and hard before picking against someone who can claim yeah. that. Um, as you suggested, this fight will tell us uh, quite a bit about Adrian Broner. If Russell handles Santiago, boy, is that a huge strike against Broner. Yeah. And like you, I, I kind of suspect he will handle him. Russell, though he hasn't fought anyone of note to prove it against, seems to have the complete package. The speed of a Russell, the southpaw style to confound with power mixed in. I'm not sure what Santiago does better than him, other than being tough and tested and more experienced. So, you know, the experience factor, maybe if it goes some rounds, the cliche about drowning him in deep water becomes relevant here, but I don't think so. I, I think the talent of Russell will win out before that happens. I'm saying Gary Antoine Russell, KO5, one round earlier than you. Okay. Uh, next up, Matias Jukambayev. I'm going to be an optimist in terms of how fan-friendly this will be. I'm thinking Matias is able to throw his usual 90 to 100 punches around, which means he's open to counters and getting hit plenty, and this is just an absolute firefight. I do think we will see a StubHub special at the former StubHub. I'm predicting both men hit the canvas. It's a back-and-forth war. It's hard as hell to score. And in the end, Matias's aggression and work rate make the difference, and he wins a split decision. Ah, okay. Uh, I, I found this the more, most difficult pick of the three. Um, you know, I, I had my doubts about Matias prior to the Hawkins fight, mainly because I was uncertain whether he'd been affected by his win over Maxim Dadashev, in which, of course, you know, afterwards Dadashev died. And the fact that he subsequently suffered his first career defeat made me think that he was one of those guys who wasn't going to get over it. And then he just took Hawkins to school and that really sent those doubts packing. Like you said, look, he's strong, he's aggressive, he's high, he's extremely active, whereas Dukenbaev has that little bit more of a more conventional um, uh, boxing style. Um, quite often I'll pick the not as spectacular but well-schooled guy to win against the maybe overly spectacular come forward, throw a ton of punches guy. I'm not quite ready to do that in this sense um i think it could also be i yeah I, i'm torn myself as to whether this is going to be a really intriguing back and forth or whether actually matthias is just going to be a little bit too strong and a little mm -hmm. bit too active but you can buy it and he's just never going to be able to get off uh, i think it's certainly one way or the other it's going to be exciting even if just one person is just pushing the pace here but i do think matthias is going to win a decision it's going to be his first non-ko win i'm going to go for a unanimous decision here for Subrio matthias all right 
All right, come the main event. Here we go. Um, all right, so I was obviously far too dismissive of Donaire's chances against Inoue, um, and of course he put up a terrific performance in defeat. Does that mean that reports of the approaching demise of Donaire's career were exaggerated? I'm not sure. Um, if you look at the underlying figures in Donaire's last several fights, they, they don't make for terrific viewing. I mean, he performed well enough statistically against the likes of Young, but his figures did drop off in, in terms of, you know, punches landed, punches landed on him when he stepped up to that slightly higher caliber of opposition. Um, and even though, like you said, he's got a decent record against Southpaws, statistically, he kind of drops a little bit when he faces them. He's less accurate, less active. You know, Ubali stand in the pocket, throw a whole ton of punches and try to slip what's coming back. Could well come unstuck against a guy in his prime of high quality who's got the hand speed and the timing and the fundamentals to pick him apart between his punches. I'm not sure that that's the 2021 version of Nonito Donaire. I, you know, you posed the question earlier, was that performance against Inoue the last great performance of a very good fighter? I suspect we'll find that it was. I don't think Donaire will, will, will embarrass himself or disgrace himself. I think it will be a competitive fight. I think he'll make Obali work harder than he's had to work. But I just don't know that Donaire has the ability to pull the trigger quite enough now to uh, expose any flaws that Ubali might have. I think Ubali is going to wind up a close but unanimous decision winner here. It's a fine pick. It's a pick that makes sense if you're listening to what your head is saying There's uh, about a this coming. fight. <laughs> but uh, the head the head says Ubali, the gut. The gut says Donaire. I went I went with my gut on the Matias Jukambayev pick uh, in terms of my gut telling me it's going to be just a war. Uh, I'm doing it again here. Um, even though Donaire is more than the two to one underdog, I'm certainly going to bet him um, at that price. I, I like that. Um, and I'm going to go out on a teeny bit of a limb and, and pick him here straight up. Um, I think he has something left. He's still hungry, determined. He can hurt Ubali, whereas I'm not sure Ubali can hurt him. And he just has a lot of length. I, I think Ubali's going to have a hard time getting in range if Donaire is disciplined about working from distance. He might have to fight in spurts, as older fighters often do. But I, I think those spurts can be enough. Maybe I'm just inspired from reliving Duran Barkley while watching my advanced copy of the Kings. <laughs> Duran, age 38 at the time. Um, but I'm going to say Donaire, close unanimous decision. All right. And it's one of, the, and with absolutely no offense meant to Nordinu Bali, this is one of those where I kind of hope you're right and I'm <laughs> wrong, right? I just like Nonito Donaire yeah. as a person yeah. and as a fighter. And what a story it would be if he could follow up that tremendous performance against it in a way with with another win here so um yeah i'm gonna be quasi rooting to not win that pick so there you go <laughs> i always kind of hope i'm right and i'm wrong just even more so in this case um so we spent the whole podcast up to this point talking about upcoming fights let's switch our focus for a few minutes to a fight that just took place one we had all been looking forward to for some time, the fight that got playoff basketball bumped. I'm talking, of course, <laughs> about the junior welterweight unification showdown between Josh Taylor and Jose Ramirez. It was back and forth action in the early rounds, close either way through five, but then Taylor blew it open with knockdowns in the sixth and seventh rounds. And although Ramirez staged a late rally, he was too far down on the scorecards, and Taylor seemed to know it. All three judges scored the contest 114-112, six rounds apiece, with the knockdowns making the difference. 
Kieran, did you agree with the scorecards? And what was it in your view that enabled Taylor to prevail? I did agree with the scorecards, although I didn't agree on every round with, with any of the official judges, and they in turn didn't quite agree with each other on every right. round. There were quite a few rounds that were quite close. Uh, I had Taylor winning the first two, and looking to my mind, quite impressive. But then toward the end of that second round, I thought Ramirez was starting to be, you know, find his range, and of course he had a terrific third round. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then it appeared for a while to me that Taylor was having some trouble adapting to his aggression. After five, I had it 3-2 Ramirez, 48-47 Ramirez. But then, of course, came those two pivotal rounds. Um, I had Taylor well up through nine. But I did give Ramirez the last uh, three rounds um, to close the gap. Although he didn't win him by a great deal. And I always felt that Taylor had it in him to step to him a little bit more down that stretch had he wanted to. It felt as if Taylor wasn't so much that Ramirez was trying to take the fight back as Taylor was... All almost comfortable with the situation and, and was keeping the rounds where he wanted them to be. Um, you know, ha had Taylor sort of stepped it up a little bit more, um, then maybe the scorecards might have more reflected what I thought was his, if not total dominance in every round, but the fact that in the broader sense of the fight, I thought he was the clear winner. Mm -hmm. um, how did he do it? Well, look, like comedy, one of the secrets of great boxing is timing. And even as Ramirez was coming forward and seemingly causing Taylor real discomfort. You could tell that Taylor was thinking, he was looking at what Ramirez was doing, and he was trying to figure out how to turn that aggression against Ramirez. And that's what those beautiful short shots that dropped him did, especially the first one, just absolutely turning Ramirez's punches uh, and aggression against him. Um, Taylor's punches were shorter, they were sharper, they were crisper, delivered from angles. And I thought they were delivered in many cases with more thought and planning while Ramirez was, was aggressive. But I didn't feel he was setting up his shots the way Taylor was. Taylor would give the impression that, you know, he would throw a punch partly with the intent of what would be the impact to a three punches down the line. Like he, he was trying to set up sequences of punches, I yeah. thought. Whereas Ramirez was, was mostly just coming forward and just trying to land whatever he could. Um, I thought that Taylor just showed the better foot movement and ring generalship. He maintained his focus. That second knockdown was a classic sign of one guy just for a second losing his focus and the other guy just keeping it uh, at all times. Um, you know, Taylor, I... I I get the impression, I don't know Josh Taylor, but I get the impression he might not be the most likable of fellows, to be perfectly honest with you. And certainly his behavior during fight week got Ramirez wound up. And he said afterwards that the whole point was to get Ramirez wound up. And it did work. You know, there were times where Ramiro was a, a little bit like a bull in a china shop. And, and he spent at times, you could tell he was a bit wound up. He was spending too much time and effort jawing at Taylor at the end of rounds mm -hmm. um, and sort of wanting the fight to keep going. Whereas Taylor fought within himself, I thought, and, and was calm throughout everything. I, I, he fought well, Ramirez, and he fought hard, and I thought he showed good powers of recuperation, and he'll learn from this. But I thought that Taylor proved, as we discussed last week, he just simply had too many tools, too wide a range of skills, I think. So Joe Tessitore made mention several times, especially during the latter stages of the fight, of the pound for pound list and whether and where Taylor now ranks on it. I don't bother with the pound for pound list anymore, but I think you're still part of the ESPN panel. So did you have him on the list before Saturday night? And do you now? And did the fact that he coasted a little down the stretch disappoint you at all or affect your feelings on whether he's worthy of pound for poundness? Yeah, so I, I am still on the ESPN panel, so you 
could have just looked up the answer to this. Uh, but ah, I was a fan. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will indulge your laziness instead of just saying, Google it, Mulvaney. Um, <laughs> I, I actually find it a useful exercise to still put together a pound for pound mm. list and have to think about the proper order every so often. And I did have Taylor on my list at number 10. Um, I put him there after the Regis Progray fight. I'm one of only two panelists out of 14 who had Taylor in the top 10 entering this fight. I won't say I was proven right. There is no right exactly. But right. I think Taylor made me look good for having him on the list. Um, I think he pretty much maintains on my list. I have Estrada and Chocolatito right above him. Uh, that's a strong debate, whether Taylor is 8, 9, or 10 now. Um, the coasting down the stretch might be what keeps him at 10. A, a stronger finish maybe moves him up those two spots. Um, but you know what else could have moved him up two spots? A referee other than Kenny Bayless, who on two separate occasions bought Ramirez time after knockdowns and diminished Taylor's chance for a KO. Um, You know, the, the, the walk this way, walk that way, then shove Taylor back a couple of times. Come on, you have to work faster and make an assessment. Um, After the second knockdown, the uppercut one, Ramirez was really wobbly when he got up. I thought Bayless might stop it. I'm fine with him not stopping it. But you can't pad the recovery time by five seconds when there are only 15 seconds left in the round. I thought Bayless was really awful in this fight in terms of when he was breaking the fighters and when he wasn't. He was the best referee on the planet 15 or 20 years ago. I I was screaming at him through the TV set Saturday (laughs) night. Uh, I think he's a big reason that this wasn't Taylor KO6 or Taylor KO7. Um, So... Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure quite what happens with a different referee in there, but that was really getting under my skin that he just kept bu- both knockdowns. Mm-hmm. He bought Ramirez a lot of time. Um, a couple of other quick comments. I had at 115-111 for Taylor. Absolutely no problem with 114-112. Um, but I'll note that uh, I had the exact same round-by-round scorecard as Dave Moretti, except he gave round two to Ramirez and I gave it to Taylor. And that mm. was, kind of, you mentioned that's around, you know, Taylor was still boxing pretty well and yeah. winning it, but then Ramirez was starting to come on at the end of the round. So I can, I can get that one. Um, I thought our, our boy Weisfeld actually had a couple of shaky rounds in this one, although his final score was perfectly fine. Um, the other thing that I want to mention in the opening bout of the card, at least the televised portion of the card Shout out to Kenneth Sims Jr., who we had on the podcast in 2019. He was in the Showtime documentary Ringside, one of the two fighters featured in that. He had a tremendous win over Elvis Rodriguez. Very happy for him. Uh, And if Top Rank and ESPN had followed my order of events that I outlined at the top of the show, (laughs) we wouldn't have seen Sims Rodriguez. So uh, it's a good lesson to not always listen to Raskin. Uh, Seriously, very happy for Kenny Sims. Excellent win. Yeah, that was absolutely one of those fights where I thought he's won. He's not going to get the decision. <laughs> yep. I, was, I was very happy to see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, let's uh, shift our time frames again. We're done looking back. Let's look ahead once again. There's one other fight of note this weekend besides the Showtime triple header. And it's on DAZN from Las Vegas, where Devin Haney defends his lightweight belt against Jorge Linares. Where do you stand on this one, Kieran? Uh, intriguing fight between a good titleist and a veteran former champ. Or a disappointing matchup between a young fighter and an opponent who's just as likely to be knocked out in the first round as to put on a strong performance? Somewhere in between the two, with I think a slightly greater leaning toward the latter. Mm-hmm. I mean, Linares still has what it takes to school opponents who are, who are a touch below the the higher levels. And, and he's certainly good enough and experienced enough that there remains you know, that element of doubt. I can't really think 
there can't have been too many fighters who are so unpredictable. Like, is he going to win this world title or is he going to get knocked out in the first round right. by a journeyman? It's just fascinating. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, the problem for him is, is that Haney is actually either at the top level or not very far below it. And as well as being a solid boxer, he can also bang when he wants to. Uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he decides to try and put it on him early just to see what happens. Um, it's interesting. So... All of Lenares' five defeats have come by stoppage, but they follow one of two patterns. Either he gets caught early, uh, as happened against Kano, uh, Thompson, and Salgado, and he, when he gets caught early, he gets caught early against people who have no business catching yep. him early, or he's surprisingly competitive or even ahead before being caught late, as was the case against Lomachenko and DeMarco. Um, he's never actually been beaten up over a fight. Um, I do think there's a chance... It doesn't necessarily get beaten up, but I think that maybe that pattern ends on Saturday. I, I think that Haney is probably young enough and strong enough and importantly good enough. And Linares may just be sufficiently shot worn that this is one of those occasions where Linares, perhaps after a decent start, um, starts to get picked apart before being stopped somewhere in around around the mid rounds. But it's it's really who the hell knows with Jorge Linares. But <laughs> I have a very hard time seeing him prevailing in this fight. Yeah, as you were talking about that extremely wide range of outcomes with Linares, uh, it reminded me because apparently I am now in the mode of comparing everything to the Four Kings because I've been watching the <laughs> documentary. Um, he's a very poor man's Tommy Hearns. He, the, right. you know, he can beat the greatest fighters in the world one night and get knocked down and rocked against just about anyone in round one the next night. Um, yeah, I mean, Haney gets a good name on his record if he wins. Um, I'm not sure it does much for him reputationally among the hardcores. It's just expected at this point that if you're any good, you'll take Lenares out in the first couple of rounds. So it, it's a bit of a no-win situation almost for Haney. Yeah. Um, and I just t tend to doubt Lenares has any turning back the clock in him at this point. And to be fair, Haney is probably too gifted to let him turn it yeah. back. Agreed. Um, we have a few news items to touch on. Uh, Eddie Hearn told Dan Rayfield that when he is in Vegas for Haney Linares, he plans to seek out representatives of Caleb Plant, who will be in town to begin discussions of a for a possible bout between Plant and Canelo Alvarez. Uh, Golden Boy announced a July 9th card on DAZN in Los Angeles. It's a nice-looking card, headlined by an interesting light heavyweight bout between Roberto Zerdo Ramirez and Sullivan Barrera, with a co-main between Javier Fortuna and Jojo Diaz. Diaz uh, taking the place of Ryan Garcia uh, against Fortuna. Uh, and Showtime's announced more details of the June 26th pay-per-view headlined by Javante Davis against Mario Barrios. The card will take place at State Farm Arena in Atlanta. And in addition to the main event and the previously announced co-main uh, between junior middleweights Erickson Lubin and Jason Rosario, it will also feature another junior middleweight bout between Julian J-Rock Williams and Brian Mendoza and junior lightweight action between Batir Akhmedov and Argenis Mendez. Any thoughts on any of the above? Anything I'm missing in terms of news over the last week or so? No, I think that's about it. And uh, yeah, not, not a bad fight among that bunch. Um, Akhmedov and J-Rock are both distinct favorites in those pay-per-view undercard <laughs> fights. But, you know, they're, they're not 50-50 fights, but they're certainly not mismatches either. Um, and you know I love Lubin Rosario. So that's looking like a strong card from top to bottom. Zerto versus Barrera is solid. Diaz-Fortuna, very competitive. Sorry if this is a boring analysis, uh, but but these are all just yeah. quality yeah. fights, quality matchmaking. Yeah, uh, if, if nobody's getting gotcha hat tattooed on their legs, uh, sometimes <laughs> I just don't have anything interesting to say. Um, I, I'll add that 
I would love to be in Atlanta for that Davis Barrio Showtime pay-per-view, but it's four days after I move, and it's the day before my kids leave for overnight camp, so uh, so that ain't happening. So instead, I'll see everyone for the Canelo Plant Showtime pay-per-view in Las Vegas. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to will that to our network, trying to make it happen. There you go. We know how much Caleb Plant will be happy to see you there. <laughs> I think he's forgotten who I am. Oh, I think he probably has, actually, yeah. yeah. All right. It is time for the final segment of the show, where typically I would assign you a top five list for next week. I'm going to shake things up a little uh, because, as you know, Kieran, I'm a crazy, unpredictable, highly spontaneous person. Um, I will throw a top five challenge your way next week. But this week, I'm going to catch you off guard with a fun little game, a guessing game. Uh, I'm the host. You're the contestant. Uh, Just so the listeners know, I gave Kieran a heads up that something different was coming. But he has no idea what. He has had no opportunity to prepare for this. His responses will all be off the cuff. So I have to start by asking a question. Do you know what Cameo is? Yes, I do. Okay. In case any of our listeners don't, I will just quickly explain. It's an app where people can go on and pay a celebrity to record a message for them. A lot of people give them as gifts to people. Uh, Hey, it's my friend Kieran's birthday. I'm going to pay soccer legend Michael Owen. At least that's how his bio on the app describes him. Soccer legend. I'm going to pay him $180 to record a one minute or so video on his phone wishing Kieran a happy birthday. Before we go any further, uh, yes. how much research did you have to do for that little tidbit? Soccer legend. <laughs> I typed in the word soccer and uh, no, actually, I first I typed in the word soccer and a bunch of names came up and I was like, oh, I'm not sure who any of these people are. Then I typed in Liverpool and he was like ah, the first name that came up. Yes. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> One eighty a good Just, price for him. What do you think? Uh, All right. So, you so know, I, I I thought about making myself available on Cameo, but I couldn't get anyone to pay more than a nickel. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm, get, brother. I'm getting to that. Uh, <laughs> your brother. Um, I'll just also note, uh, to give people a little more perspective, the guy who plays Kevin on The Office apparently makes more than a million dollars a year recording cameo videos. He's very good at it. Yeah, he's he's got like a good good shtick, makes him fun. And uh, yeah, so anyway. Um, so, you know, the uh, the Cousin Sal sports gambling podcast I mentioned recently that's produced by recent tweeter of the week, Jim Cunningham. They play a game called Cameo Over Under, where they have to guess whether someone's cameo price is over or under a certain number. I don't want to steal directly from them. We're not playing that game, but I'm definitely borrowing the concept as I make our game unique. There are tons of boxers and boxing-adjacent people on there. I'm going to give you a list of names, and you have to guess the order from most expensive to least expensive. Um, Now, here's what you need to know. Everybody on Cameo sets their own price. Uh, so you talked about you charging a nickel. Yeah, if, if I wanted to go on Cameo and charge $10 a greeting, I could do that. If I'm getting lots of requests, maybe I raise my price. More realistically, I get no requests. I drop my price to a nickel. Um, so, okay, you get how it works. I do. Right. Okay, so for today's game, I am going to list the eight most expensive boxing people. Um, if, if this turns out to be fun, we can come back to it later with some of the mid-range boxers or some of the cheapest boxers. But here, we're going with the top eight. And you need to try to guess who charges the most and on down the line. I will list them in alphabetical order, giving nothing away. Right. You might want to jot these down. I am ready. Pen okay. in hand. Yeah. Okay, here we go. In alphabetical order, Michael Buffer, George Foreman, Roy Jones, Ray Leonard, Lennox Lewis, Dolph Lundgren, who is listed on the site as an actor and boxer. Okay. Floyd Mayweather and Antonio Tarver. 
Those are the top eight on Cameo, although number eight is tied with some other people I'm not including. Okay. You try to guess the order, and if you want, before you start, I can tell you the price range, what the most expensive oh, and yeah, least expensive. Would, would that help? Okay. Yeah. So the most expensive is $999, and the least expensive is $200. That is the range we're looking at here. And nobody in this list is tied. Is that correct? There actually is a tie for fourth and fifth. I would have uh, given you credit uh, either way with, with those. But yes, there is a tie in the middle. Okay. And so it's not necessarily about who should be charging more. It's what a person's opinion of themselves and how much they should be charging, they wanted to charge. So that's, that's an important factor, I suppose. Right. And potentially in combination with whether that price is working for them. And, uh, but yes. Okay. Uh, so, you, so I'll let you kind of go through, work it, work it out, give me your thought process and give me your full list. And then I'll tell you all the answers okay. at the end. So Michael Buffer is extremely adept at making an extraordinarily large amount of money for what at least appears, but isn't, of course, he works hard at it, but a relatively brief appearances. And yes. more to the point, his brother is exceptionally good at making <laughs> sure that everybody pays him the money. I'm going to put him aside because I think he's, if he's not at the top, he's very close to the top. George, I think probably because he has more money than God is going to, it's not necessarily going to be pricing uh, 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 himself in such a way to get the maximum amount of money. He's probably going to say, I'll charge a large amount of money. And if people want to do it, great. And if they don't, so I'm, I think he's probably near the top too. Um, Floyd, Floyd's got to be near. I mean, Floyd doesn't do anything unless he can extract the maximum amount of money for it. He's got to be near the top. Antonio Tarver. So, is gonna so be far, we have everybody near the point. top. Yeah. So I'm putting aside <laughs> the guys who I think are very close to the top. Okay. I don't know that anybody still knows or cares about Dolph Lundgren. I think he's probably number eight. I'll go through the whole list first, shall I? And then do you want to? do that and rather than pick apart my individual placements yeah yeah when you're when you're all when you've got them one through eight as you as as, as you like them i'll uh, let you know how you did okay Dolph Lundgren's number eight because okay. yeah i don't know how many people know who he is and i think the people who know who he is probably don't know what cameo is <laughs> so antonio tarver is barely ahead of him i think uh, he might need the money more, might be charging more, but uh, he's also got to be realistic about what he's got. Got eight Lundgren, seven Tarver. Um, Lennox, I kind of imagine, could be only half-assed about this. And this just doesn't seem like it's a very important thing for him. And uh, he probably has a good toke or two before he records any message anyway. So I'm going to put Lennox at six. Okay. Roy, I'll put at five again, partly because I doubt that he really has any idea what the hell is going on. And he just has somebody occasionally saying to him, hey, record this message and you'll get 500 bucks. And he'll be like, great, I could buy some chickens. <laughs> um, so this leads us with four honestly quite large egos who all of whom are quite fond of money. Um, I will put Ray for George three, Floyd two, Buffer one. Okay, I'm just jotting these down. So you had Leonard four, Foreman three, Mayweather two, 
and buffer at number one. Right, um, until Floyd finds out the buffer's at number one, in which case he <laughs> definitely charges more. Right. Uh, okay, That's interesting it. thought process. And you were in the ballpark on some of them and way off on others. Okay. Here, I will give you the full countdown. From I'll go from top to bottom. Okay. The n- actual number one, you were close. You had him at number two. Floyd Mayweather okay. charges $999. Okay. And number two, you were also very close on George Foreman charges okay. $800. Um, number three, I think you underestimated, or maybe he overprices himself. Lennox Lewis, five hundred dollars. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I said there was a tie in the the four five spot, uh, and so you you nailed one of the people in the middle. Sugar Ray Leonard is four hundred dollars. He's tied with surprisingly Antonio Tarver, charging four hundred bucks. Yeah. Uh, I guess. You know, he's not getting he, a lot he, of money. He appeared in a Rocky movie. Maybe that helps. Uh, mm-hmm. And speaking of which, at number six, not at number eight, as you had him, Dolph Lundgren charges three hundred fifty bucks. Um, and next up, I guess this would be the most out of line with what you had guessed. Michael Buffer, only two hundred ninety nine dollars. I'm really surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah, he dis- discounts himself a, a little bit. Uh, I, wa- I would imagine he's pretty popular because yeah. who doesn't want to ha- hear someone say the get ready to rumble phrase? Right. So, yeah. Um, and at number eight, tied with other people I did not include, but the biggest names of the people who charge $200, Roy Jones. So yeah. there's the list. Uh, Floyd, George, Lennox, Ray Leonard, Tarver, Lundgren, Buffer, Roy. The only one that super surprises me is, is is Michael Buffer, not only because he's very good at getting as much money, but also, as you said, everybody knows that catchphrase. Everybody knows that voice, like right. whether you're a boxing fan or not. So um, if he's listening, which I'm sure he is, uh, I suspect his price is going up when he realizes how much <laughs> Possibly, although, you know, the fact that he charges the two ninety nine yeah. does speak to his business acumen that he there understands. That. Yeah, uh, the other one who's doing that is Floyd at nine ninety nine. I wouldn't pay a thousand for Floyd, but under a thousand, nine ninety nine, sure, sign me up. Nine dollars ninety nine, sure, I'd do that. <laughs> yeah, <That's, laughs> you you moved the decimal point just a little bit there. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, that will do it for that was fun. I like that. Good, That's good. I, I'm glad you mentioned this as a concept a, a short while back. And yeah, this this definitely uh, find ways to to sort of change that that this segment up with, yeah. by doing that. And I like that. Very cool. good. All right. That will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, as a reminder, Showtime Championship Boxing will air this Saturday beginning at 10 p.m. Eastern. We really need to talk. We need Stephen Espinosa back on this podcast so we can start talking to him about it. These start times are creeping later. Yes. And it is not good for us washed podcasters. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> All right. Uh, and do visit the Showtime Sports YouTube page for the trailer for The Kings, which has already been much mentioned in this podcast. <laughs> the four-part documentary series about Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, Roberto Durant, and Thomas Hearns. Uh, that will air every Sunday in June, beginning on the 6th. And we will be giving that series a full preview uh, in next week's show. And we'll also be looking back on Saturday's card in next week's show. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. Citizen sleuths are focusing on the brutal slayings of four college kids. A new Paramount Plus original docuseries. This is the start of something major. Follows online detectives as they unravel the mystery of the infamous Idaho college murders. 
There's plenty of places to hide a weapon. And turned it into a social media phenomenon. Where are the roommates? It is a huge night. I want the truth from you. Hashtag Cyber Sleuths. The Idaho Murders. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+.